I'm trying to tell you that going after the golden goose isn't always the best path to success. So like going after the hit movie idea or the hit song, there's a lot of people trying to write hit songs. You know what I mean? But only a few of them get lucky. So we don't even try to go that route. We just try to be legit, try to be who we are. And because we do that, it works. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is the man that DJ Magazine says is the best DJ in America, none other than the legendary Claude Von Stroke. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have authentic dialogues that celebrate the people, the ideas, and the companies that have the courage to stand out. And man, do we have that today with Mr. Von Stroke. We are sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. Now, Mr. Von Stroke, this is a man who regularly performs as a DJ in front of crowds of five and 10,000 people or more. Not only is he a DJ, he's an entrepreneur and he runs his own record label, events company, clothing brand, and more. Billboard Magazine says his label, Dirty Bird, is one of the top five independent dance labels on the planet. And Mix Magazine says that Dirty Bird is the label of the decade. He's also got a critically acclaimed radio show and podcast called The Birdhouse. And in the world of electronic music, Claude Von Stroke is the mayor. And we have a great conversation about perseverance. This man worked for well over a decade before he made it. We talk about creativity and making music, entrepreneurship, massive risk uh, taking. Clotus bet it all more than once and been on the edge of disaster more than once. <laughs> and we also talk about partnering with your spouse. Um, he and his wife run their business together. So for more, go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes on this episode uh, for this episode and get the key takeaways. Also learn more about um, Mr. Von Stroke's music. He's got some new stuff coming out right now. And I also want to let you know that Claude Von Stroke is his stage name, as you may have guessed. So during our conversation, you'll actually hear me refer to him by his uh, original name, which is Barkley, Barkley Crenshaw. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So how are you, Barkley? I'm good. How it's are really you? great to meet you. It's nice to meet you too. There's a, a million questions that I have. I mean, it just seems like if one of the things about having a legendary life is have an interesting life, at least as I've gotten to know you and, um, you know, learn some stuff about your background, it sounds like you're having a very interesting life. Is that how it feels? Yeah, it's more... Interesting than I thought. <laughs> I don't know if it's more interesting than I thought it would be when I was a kid. I probably thought I was going to be in like a JR token book or something, but uh, yeah, I mean, there was like a part in there where I had regular jobs for a really long time where I was like, man, is this going to be it? But then I uh, turned it around, I guess you could say. Yeah, so that's what, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things about your background, but um, maybe we start there. 
you know, in the media, especially uh, and in your line of work, you know, if I, in music in general, the story that gets told all the time is, you know, the Adele like story, you know, the 19 year old genius or the 22 year old American idol or whatever. There's a, you know, it's a very young feeling, but the truth is music gets created by people of all ages and uh, you didn't hit it big on your 17th birthday, did you? No, I did not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't get anything going until about 32, which wow. is crazy late, especially for this genre, which is full of 18-year-olds making beats on their computer. Yeah. The one thing about it is that I always did it. Since I was 11, I bought rudimentary studio equipment. So it wasn't like, oh, I just decided at 32 I was going to start doing electronic music. I was doing it my whole life. I just didn't figure out a way to make money or to get anything professional out of it until that age. And was that your aspiration or was, um, you know, electronic music sort of a, a fun thing you did on the side? Like, you know, some guys will go play guitar, Bob Dylan tunes at a local coffee house or whatever. I would say, yes, it was a hobby for sure. But I was I was really serious about it. I just it was more that uh, it was so I'm dating myself. I'm sure you're kind of in the same realm where. You just don't go find out everything on the Internet. When you're a kid, it's like you actually have to find out from a mentor or from a magazine. And You mean like back in the day when Wikipedia yeah. was called the Encyclopedia Britannica back then? Right, exactly. <laughs> so like thinking about electronic house music, hip-hop was starting to get popular, but electronic music, the kind of electronic music that I release, I mean, unless you're growing up in downtown new york or chicago or something like there's pretty much no chance that you're going to be surrounded by this and so there's almost no chance that you're going to learn how to do it sorry i'm just turning on the it's getting hot in here uh there's no chance that you can figure it out unless somebody is doing it in your neighborhood so you, Which there, a, there was nobody like doing it in my <laughs> You really needed a mentor. You needed role models to look up to. You can't just figure the shit out. Yeah. There's a reason why there's no huge DJ from Milwaukee. And it's not because there's nobody that's talented in Milwaukee. It's because there's no generational group of artists every six years flipping over that's showing another group of younger people like, oh, you can be a huge techno DJ from Milwaukee. That's kind of, it's you like, had to you know what Detroit. I mean? You had to leave Detroit. Well, I was actually born in Cleveland and then we moved to Detroit and that's when it started to change. Oh, interesting. So Cleve, Cleveland's like a rock city and that's fine. I, I liked it there, but when I think we moved in like seventh grade and then the radio is really what changed. So what so, year roughly would that be, Barkley? Like 1983 or something like that. Yeah. So the radio is like, I'm listening to a DJ every night. I went 
I'll, I'll put it to you very plainly. I can even tell you the names. I went from listening to Uncle Vic in Cleveland playing, playing like Journey to listening to the electrifying Mojo playing Prince, Run DMC, uh, Spoonie G, Juan Atkins, like completely flipped what I was listening to on the radio. And I listened, I was one of those kids that listened to the radio every night. Yeah. I was not, I was, I was obsessed with listening to the radio because it's not like now where you can just listen to whatever you want. You listen to what you could listen to. Yes. (laughs) And there was only a few stations really, I mean, compared to the choices we have today. Right. Uh, And it is interesting how much we are influenced um, by the, the music we listen to. And of course, back then, by the radio, the few radio station choices we had, we picked one and away we went, right? Yeah. And so when you were in your 20s, you're working on your craft. Are you still aspiring to be a pro DJ or are you thinking, hey, man, this is going to be a fun thing I do. It's going to be part of my life. Um, but, you know, so, like some people sing in a choir or, you know, yeah. do whatever they do. But it's not how I'm going to make my living. Or were you the whole time thinking... I really want to do this. No, I wanted to be a film director and it just, it took me good solid 15 years to realize that that requires being a really, it's more of a project management, people management job. than uh, I can just sit in my house and needle everything to death kind of job. And I was better at the latter, which is, and so I was better at making music than making movies. I'm not saying I was bad at making movies. I'm just saying the path is just totally different. It's like you need to be a real like manager of personalities to be a great filmmaker. But to be a musician, you just kind of have to learn how to manage yourself. Yeah. So, I find this fascinating. So you spend 15 years on a primary path called, I want to be a filmmaker. Um, but I was, it was almost like it was like the music thing was in the closet. It's like, I had to be, I'm so good at the music part, but I don't want to admit it. Why do you want to admit it? It's almost like, Oh, I'm going to be a musician. I don't know. I, the part of it was that I didn't actually see the path either. I didn't see the DJing was a path that you could do to like have a job. So when you were in your mid twenties, you weren't thinking. That's kind of when I first saw it. That's when I first saw, I started going to the underground raves way later, like 23 instead of like 18. And so I saw some guys in Detroit and I was like, wow, these guys, this is all they do. And did it ever occur to you that you'd be standing in front of 10,000 people doing that? No, never. Yeah. But I mean, I did get the bug right around then. And so I want to go back to this 15 years in the closet stuff (laughs) because I I find it fascinating. You know, you read all this shit about self-help or how do I design my life or, you know, people ask for advice and all that. And most of what we hear, I think, is either bullshit or inaccurate. And so, you know, I find it fascinating 
Because if you listen to most success literature, they say, hey, set your goal, go for that goal, and hustle, hustle, hustle until that goal happens. And somewhere along the 15-year path, there's a pretty major change for you. And the goal you I started mean, off with doesn't end up being what you pursue. Is that, is the that lines accurate? Are so, the lines are so blurred on this one because I'll tell you why. It's because I was actually kind of doing both at the same time. I decided that our earlier problem that we discussed where you can't find out any information I was going, because I worked in a shop that had equipment, I worked in a post-production facility in San Francisco at the time. I had moved from Detroit after a while. And I decided that the way I was going to get around the not knowing anybody who's in the industry was I was going to make a documentary about house and techno music. And every famous DJ that came into San Francisco I would get someone to come with me with a camera. I didn't even own a camera. I would get them on Craigslist. We would go to the venue. I would have done it over email with them. And I was lucky enough to get a few of the respected Detroit artists through some personal connections to do it. So at that point, it was kind of like high school, like, oh, these four guys did it. And then they're like, oh, of course, we'll do it because those other four guys were on it. You know what I mean? So I, was so I want to make sure get, I understand. You were interviewing the top DJs yes. who were coming to San Francisco yes, from somewhere exactly. else. Exactly. Right. And in so doing, you were conspiring to have them be uh, mentors for you without them even yes. realizing it. So, right. you're, so I you had a wickedly like, evil plan going here. Yes. I would interview them for like an hour or two, and their thing would end up being five minutes when I would edit it all down but I would ask them everything I ever wanted to know about what they did and how they did it. And then I actually edited that whole project and then I ran out of money. So I couldn't license any music. And so I had to make the songs that sounded like all the artists that I had interviewed. And so by the end of the project, everyone hated me. I'd borrowed money from everyone and like, sold my instruments and like everything to you know like going all the way to the bottom of the barrel on just every aspect my parents were like are you ever gonna pay us back like whatever everything every friend got a phone call and uh so i ended up i couldn't get any more money it was over so I had to just make this music. And so I made music that sounded like each one of the DJs. And by the end of editing the project, I not only had found out every single piece of information about how each one of these people got to where they were, I also figured out how to make the songs that they made. And so then I was like, well, now I pretty much can, I have the, I have the map. And then that was it. And literally like, I would say six months later, I had started the record label and we were off. And I was already like, my first record was big because I had been like bottled up for 20 years waiting to release a huge record or whatever. That is so fucking legendary, Barkley. <laughs> uh, not to be overly corny, but I fucking love you, man. That's awesome. It, it, everything about that is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Fucking A. And so lots lots to look at here, right? When there is yeah. no playbook, 
then you got to right. figure out the playbook and you right. got to go, you know, what I love about what you're saying is, and I, I think, you know, it's easy to lose this, particularly today where there's this myth that you can sort of go on YouTube, spend a couple hours, and then like you're some guru in some whatever fucking field, right? You can learn to play piano right. like, you know, Billy Joel or whatever. And yeah. so what I love about what you did was um, you studied at the feet of masters. Yeah. Um, you were making a movie. And and I say this with you know uh, tongue in cheek, but and you were a little nefarious about it, weren't you? <laughs> a little. I mean, yeah, I I was upfront with them. I, was, I did say like this isn't going to be the interview where you tell me what your favorite color is. I'm going to ask you like about mixing the records and like the production techniques and everything. Yeah, but, but yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, totally. And I'm curious, what is your now that you are you know, um, there's so many accolades and I don't know which ones stand out to you. This one seemed to stand out to me a lot, which is, um, uh, number one label of the decade. <laughs> right. Like, Hey, that fucking hey, dude, way to go. Like you, and you've had lots of others and giant hit records and your first record was a monster and, you know, best DJ of this year. And, you know, here's yeah. what I love about it. Right. When DJ magazine says you're the best DJ, you're probably the best fucking DJ. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? And so it's uh, all rigged. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, nice going on the rig job then. <laughs> and so I'm curious, what's, are, are these DJs that you interviewed and sort of learned from, are these folks still around? What's uh, relationships with them? Some of them are, are still around. Some of them have completely vanished. It's kind of interesting. Like how fast the turnout it, that came out in 2000, which doesn't seem that far away for me, but it is right. far away. Of course. Or it may have come out in 2001. And yeah, most of everyone's not around, but I mean, one of the best interviews on the whole thing was this guy, Derek Carter from Chicago. And I just did a festival in Chicago and I had him come and just play back to back with me for like the last 40 minutes or whatever just as kind of a 360 like thing and it was really cool and that was probably that was the first time i ever played with him and i mean i remember being in a club and watching him and being like that's almost impossible to imagine being able to do what he's doing yes and and I, I want to get, I want to circle back to this sort of from movie to music in a sec. But before we go on this topic, I'm curious if you're having this experience in your life. Um, so I've had exactly that experience that you described in a business context where right. uh, literally the first sort of mega successful entrepreneur that I knew about, that I was sort of roughly in orbit of, but far, and then finally met. You know, so not like a Bill Gates where you knew him, but the chances you were going to meet him. This was a guy that, you know, I was in Canada. He was in Canada. Anyway, I finally met him. His name's Norm Francis. He's a legendary uh -huh. technology entrepreneur. And when I met him, I was literally a plebe, uh, you know, in the world. And he was, you know, the man in the world that I was in. Fast forward to today. You know, we have a great relationship. We've done a few things here and there. We communicate. That's great. And so on one hand, there's this sort of acknowledgement of elder, acknowledgement of master and sort of the yeah. thrill of having a relationship with an idol. 
And then right. here's the second part I want to ask you about. Are you also, because this is something that's going on for me in, you know, more recently, is I'm at the place where I'm now that guy for the yeah. next generation. And so it sort of feels got, really cool yeah. to be in the middle generation with your old heroes, some of which you get to know, and then your new young heroes that you're helping out. Are, are, are you having that? I have this pretty much identical scenario going on right now where the person that I wanted to be like or sound like, uh, his name is Green Velvet, and he did this track called The Percolator, which probably, if you listen to any of this, you know this track. You might even know it if I played it for you, but you might not recognize the name. Uh, and now we have a group together called Get Real, where we DJ together. And we also are signing like tons of new kids that I, that, I mean, I sign kids every week that I think are really talented. And some of them I'll even like bring all the way in and like talk to them all the time about how to, how to get where they need to go. So it's almost identical. It's like, yeah. like I'm actually DJing with the guy that I tried to be like. Yeah. And I'm mentoring all the kids. Who want to be under. like you. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's what I figured with the label. And I, I, I had assumed, but of course, now you're confirming it. My suspicion, which is, um, you know, for Dirty Bird to be label of the decade, <laughs> uh, a huge part of it is, of course, selecting the right up and coming artists because they got to be the right kind of talent and, you know, I'm sure, but I got to believe you're now a sensei. And so there's the mentoring, the talent as well, right? It, 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 there's got, yeah. you got to be doing both to be the deck, the rec label of the fucking decade. I like the mentoring part to an extent. <laughs> there's always, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's the kid that, is taking it in the right way and then there's the kid that's literally never gonna get it <laughs> you know what i mean yeah i know exactly <laughs> what you mean I, in in conversations with entrepreneurs and ceos i said look why do you keep fucking calling me you never right. take any of my advice as a matter of fact right. you normally do the exact opposite thing i don't know why the fuck you want to talk to me anymore. right exactly yeah and so you know, to get back. I'm also, but you're Sorry, in yeah, a finish. you're in a kind of a highly motivated industry. Yeah, I'm, in a, I'm in a DJ industry, so just imagine the characters and the like. Dude, if I wake up at two, it's cool. Kind of people that I'm dealing with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I might be I might be too stoned that day, Barkley. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like, yeah. Oh. Or who knows, maybe I met a very attractive lady or, or man right. or group of ladies and men and I got distracted or whatever, right? It's one of the most interesting things about our business is that it's entertainment business and there's and it includes partying. It's a weird dynamic. Yeah. Because we have to be business people, but the business that we're in is partying. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah, it, it must be, uh, um, you must be a man of much discipline because <laughs> I yeah. would probably let myself go. Like I, you know, I grew up playing music and um, 
I'm so glad I didn't make it because if I'd made yeah. it, I would have been dead by now for sure. For yeah. sure. You look at rock stars, it's like, ah, like at least half my heroes are dead and most yeah. of them die really young, right? So it's just, There's, is your world like that? Yeah, there are some, there are DJs who make it just on the like, I want to party with this guy vibe. I feel like there's in every genre there is that, but I mean, some of these people, I'm impressed almost at how their stamina of being able to survive this. Yeah, I had I stopped drinking last year because just it's just crazy. It's too much. And so you don't drink at all now? No, not anymore. But I did for a long time. <laughs> yeah, you put a lot of miles it, on that liver. Yeah, I bet I did. <laughs> I was trying to earn them back. Exactly. You still have time. So I, I want to go back to this um, from film to music decision and sort of evolution. And, and, and maybe let me set the context of why I'm so curious about it. Um, last night, I did a Q&A session with a bunch of young entrepreneurs. And uh, we we're sort of having a discussion. And one of the topics that came up is sort of, you know, how do I know when I should make a goal and pursue that goal and damn the torpedoes, I'm going to do this thing versus the reality of many of our lives. It's true in my life. It sounds like it's very true in your life that while you might be goal oriented, while you might've been moving in a direction, you know, you have to be uh, to use maybe a bullshitty sounding term, strategically flexible, right? It's like, as you're doing this and, but you got this and you're swirling it up and you're in this whole sort of, process of self-discovery and what you what I would think of as life design and you feel like you're directionally right but you're you're sort of living your life as this fucking experiment and then yeah. one day you put it all together and you go bam and 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 the universe shifts and so first of all a is that how it feels for you and and or how does it feel for you and b how I, do you yeah. how do you capitalize on that how do you be pursuing this thing but yet be open to the serendipity and the magical turns life can open up. I don't, I think I'm still, a lot of people would say like, I already had the bam, but I'm still waiting for the bam, <laughs> like where everything works just because it started out. Okay. I'm just going to go on tour and I'm going to make music. Right. Then it started becoming a clothing company. Then we started a music festival. Then we have an event series. Then we're producing them all ourselves. Then it's a publishing company. Then it's like whatever. Like there's five companies in here. They're not all run for the best they could be run. And, and it's mostly because of the same thing that I was saying this whole time. We don't really know the person that necessarily who has run their own clothing company who's just coming in here being like, oh, you should just do it like this. We just did it. So everything is a mistake that we fix over and over and over and over. And we just hope that it keeps getting a little bit better every time. And that's basically, that's why I'll, I don't know if I'll ever feel that there's a bam. Maybe I will, but like, so it's just it's like incremental, like incremental improvements till the end of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it's funny because people have this fantasy that they're going to quote unquote make it. Right. And when they make it, it'll be just moonlight and canoes and champagne no. and roses and right. Right. Well, that's the, uh, the one thing from that very first documentary that I made when I mentioned the, this guy, Derek Carter, the best piece of advice that he gave me is like, he said, you got to work harder than everyone else and you have to have every job. So you understand what everybody does. And then once you make it, you're just going to have to work 10 times harder than that. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> right. And do you ever take a moment to reflect on, uh, oh, holy shit, man. Uh, I'm the biggest damn DJ, certainly in America and maybe in most of the know. world. I mean, do you ever go like, holy fuck? You ever go like, hey, man, we created this record label and have, uh, you know, exposed the world to all these artists and holy shit, I'm about to walk on stage in front of 10,000 people who are ready to, uh, you know, go mental with me? Sometimes. I do take a moment, like, on stage sometimes if it's really, like, an amazing show. I definitely notice that I say that, like, pinch myself here and there. Uh but honestly, I'm always trying to like make it better for the next time or, or just figure out some kind of tweak to improve it or whatever there is to do. Like I'm never resting. Sometimes I enjoy it. I mean, I always enjoy it. It's great. I, I was like working in the stock room 30 years ago or whenever. Yeah. Way, way different now when you walk out on stage yeah. at one of your own festivals in front of five or 10,000 people, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm almost lucky that I had a lot of quote unquote real jobs because when I started to kind of get, make it, get paid to do music, I was like, Wow. I wasn't like, oh, I just this is just going to be happening forever. I'm so this, I'm so awesome. I was like, like holy shit! I finally don't have to go to pack boxes or duplicate DVDs or edit this men's warehouse video or whatever the fuck I was doing. <laughs> and I don't have to go worry about like what, how many TV commercials I can be a production assistant on or whatever. And that really, it's like I got my claws in and then I let literally never unhook the claws. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so great. It's interesting. I'm sure you've had this experience. You know, I, uh, from time to time, spend some time with some very, uh, what I would call super ding dong people, you know, highly important, um, yeah. super successful people. And I always find it interesting, you know, for example, if you're out at dinner and um, somebody treats the, the, the wait staff like shit. And yeah. I think, oh, you never had a real job, did you, motherfucker? No. Because, like, uh, you and I sound like we're from the same place, which is, you know what? I try to be super nice to the gal or the guy bringing us the cocktail or, or the yeah. dinner or, like... Or, or the guy parking your car or, or the, the guy. Or otherwise, they're going to be dropping person. their balls in it in the back room. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that factor, too. <laughs> uh, and so here's another question I've been dying to ask you. Um, in some ways, you're in the hit business. Is, 
Is that fair? You you want to make no, hits, I would. Right? That's actually not true. It's not. It's okay. interesting. It's interesting. We are technically an underground label, and because of that, we don't have the same kinds of pressures as a label that is kind of more of a hit machine. And we take huge risks and we release weirder stuff. And yes, what happens because of that is hit records come out of this system. But I'm not actively seeking out hit records. We're not like a hit factory. But I actually think that's why it works and that's why it has longevity because it's real and the music is really authentic and we always have a hit come out of it, but it's not because we're trying to do a formula to have a hit. It's because we just sign a lot of really interesting music and then every once in a while they click and they work with everyone, but that doesn't mean they're even better than the tracks that don't work with everyone in my opinion. And we don't even sign people to long-term deals because what I found is a person will write a huge track. They'll start touring. They'll have no concept of what it is that they have to do because they're touring every weekend. And every once in a while, somebody's incredibly prolific. I'll try to, to sign them longer deal. Like we just signed this group, Walker and Royce, who are extremely talented, but that's very far and few between. Interesting. So what is it about? I want to make sure I understand your point. What is it about? I'm an artist. I do one record. I have a hit and, but I'm not necessarily set up for, for, for enduring success. Well, maybe explain that a little bit more to me. Yeah. It's kind of like if you won the lottery and you had no idea what it was like to have $7 million and you just blew it all in like 18 weeks. It's, it's not the same, but I'm saying like, if you have a hit record and you have no, if you kind of know how to DJ, so people don't get booked. Back in the day, people got booked on being really incredible DJs. Those days are over completely. Now you get booked if you have a popular track. So just because you have a popular track does not mean that you're a good performer. So there are guys that like just get thrown out onto the road. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't know what to expect. They have no idea what the life is like to be in an airplane like eight times a weekend and a DJ Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for six weeks. And they just have, they can't handle it. They don't make any new music. You never get another record or the records they make are just complete garbage because they just don't, they can't focus on it. And they maybe be a good producer, but they can't do both. So I've seen the one hit wonder thing happens in dance music more than anything else. People have complete meltdowns all the time. That's fascinating. And I'm, I'm curious about this, you know, cause I've spent probably two thirds of my uh, professional life working in the B2B enterprise space. And so I have much more experience there than I do in the consumer space. And now, particularly as an author and a podcaster, that's the most consumery thing I've personally ever done. Right. And um, 
you know, I've talked to lots of super high-end, super successful authors and podcasters. And, you know, I always say to them, okay, so how do you be you, you know, like you did for your movie? And they tell you stuff and that stuff's interesting and there's some patterns and all that. But the truth is having sat down with some of the most um, successful uh, authors and podcasters on the planet, they don't really know what makes it work. There's, there's, and what I've learned now, I'm, you know, it'll, it's uh, two and a half years since my first book came out, two years since I started podcasting. What I've learned now by talking to all these other folks is there's just a magical mystery about what makes something go as a, you know, consumer type, um, oh, yeah. enter- entertainment type product that even the most successful prolific people in the world can't quite seem to tell you what it is. That's my interpretation. But is that is that what you're telling me, or what 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 are you telling me, Berkeley? <laughs> I don't know exactly what I'm trying to tell you. I am I'm trying to tell you that going after the golden goose isn't always the best path to success. So, like going after the hit movie idea or the hit song is not going to, there's a lot of people trying to write hit songs. You know what I mean? But only a few of them get lucky. We don't, so we don't even try to go that route. We just try to be legit. Like we try to be who we are. And because we do that, it works. But I mean, I remember what you were talking about just now, trying so many things to just get out of the workforce. And being like, I would just keep saying to myself over and over again and to like many a girlfriend who just couldn't stand my attitude, I would just be like, how fucking hard is it to make $40,000 a year and not work at a regular job? It can't be that hard. But I said it for so long that I started to be like, man, maybe it really is that hard and that I just have to do it. But then I, I figured I still figured my own way out of it. Uh, so I love try to be legit. And I love this. Like, I just want to make 40 grand a year being a fucking DJ. Right. <laughs> or, or, whatever. Like, or, or, or whatever. Or or whatever. Selling something creative, right? Something or just anything, a business idea, anything where I'm not going. I was always like, I'm not the guy that you want to hire because I just want to work for myself. I would never tell anyone that. Yeah, you were you not a long-term um, box unpacker or whatever. What, what, what were right. some of the jobs you were doing? <laughs> I mean, I did every possible job, all the way from selling per- fake perfume out of the back of my car to working like Kelly Temp Services in a bank to editing men's warehouse commercials. I had a DVD duplication company. Uh, I was a production assistant, a location manager on films and TV commercials. And just, I had a lot of jobs. So do you have these experiences like I have, because you and I have very similar backgrounds. Um, and I, you know, it was, it was not clear for a very long time, whether, you know, I was going to be spend my life eating shit sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, right. I del- delivered a lot of newspapers and, uh, as a teenager, I was an orderly, you know, so I shaved a lot of guys' balls. Right? Oh, wow. Um, but, <laughs> it, 
the, the, what is it? So that's my question to you is what is the thing? I don't know what age you made it at, but what is the thing where you're like, I can't accept this because there is that thing in, in a lot of entrepreneurs where you're just like, I, this is unacceptable to me. I have to break this. That, that was early for me. I mean, I, it was 17, 18 years old. Yeah. And I made a decision. You know, my mother was terrified. I'd been thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. I found out at 21, I'm dyslexic and I have all this other stuff. I just put it all together and call it dysfuclea. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, and so, so you know, at, at 18 years old, um, the band I was in had broken up. I had a job as an orderly and my mother was terrified that I was just going to be an orderly. And, you know, look, not that there's anything wrong with that, but a, a life where you do the same thing for 50 years to get to a pension, you know, she hoped for more for me. And certainly I hope for more for me. And so um, I, I made a decision that I was going to go for it come hell or high water. And I started a company with a buddy of mine and kind of onward and upward. And I guess, I guess to answer your question, when did I feel like I made it? I started at 18. My first company failed miserably, was massively in debt, ended up going and joining another startup to help start another company, paying off my debts, doing all that stuff, blah, blah, yada, yada. A couple companies later, I sold that company to a Silicon Valley-based software company when I was 27 going on 28. And so by 28 years old, I was the head of marketing for a publicly traded um, you know, $150 million software company in Silicon Valley, and I had become a millionaire. Wow, cool. And so at that point, I certainly felt like I had made it. But the yeah. flip side, and I don't know if you felt that way to the point you were on earlier, I was way too busy going for it to feel, to spend, yeah. you know, I had a moment of, sure, let's have some champagne, this is awesome kind of moments, and you know, right. more than one, but I was too busy trying to then be, uh, you know, a legendary marketing executive and build the company and beat the competition. And, you know, and then the internet took off and, you know, and, and so you're busy doing your life as opposed to reflecting on, Hey man, uh, compared to delivering newspapers and shaving guys balls, this is way better. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, you have to take that with a grain of salt as well, because I watched this movie. I don't know if you've heard of it. I think it's done by Rob Reiner where it's all these 90, year, 90 plus year old friends of his and why they're still alive. And it's because they all work. They all go on walks every day. They all still sing and perform and they all go out to lunch. Like they, it's like once you stop doing the stuff that you wanted to do, you're you're basically just sitting on the couch and just dying yeah so there is like a thing like stopping like there is no day in my opinion where you're just gonna be like oh now i don't have to do anything because that's basically your you're over <laughs> you know it's what so i mean it's so funny you say there's this. no like resting resting year right <laughs> Well, I have tried to do that and failed miserably. And yeah. I used to say that I was right. retired. And I, right. one of the gifts of this podcast is, you know, I get to meet a lot of legendary folks like yourself. And, uh, you know, some of them I develop friendships with. And one of those people is the legendary NBA player, Bill Walton. And Bill whacked me and said, retired? 
He said, John Wooden never retired, you know, and, and right. he made me realize that your point is, is the point. What it, the things that you do might be different. Um, yeah. But if you're somebody who likes to, you know, do shit in the world, to create shit in the world, to hopefully make a difference in the world and to hopefully, you know, have fun making a difference, creating shit that matters in the world. Right. You it, it, look as my buddy, David Sachs says, yeah. beaches are boring. Yeah, it's true. I, I actually find beaches boring, even though my wife loves them. <laughs> well, I love them yeah, too. I mean, I know, I know I'm screwed because I'll go into a, like, even I'll just go into like a movie theater with my kids and I'll like count the rows and be like, how much were the tickets and how many rows are there and how many seats are in here and how much did it cost them to hire the five people to pick up popcorn and how much did they make on this screening? Like that's, it's, it's, I got it bad. So the, the squirrels are always juggling those kind of chainsaws <laughs> right. in your head. <laughs> right. And do you also, I'm curious, I mean, obviously you're a prolific musician as well as now entrepreneur. Do you have music swirling around in your head all the time too? Yeah, pretty much. I, it's, it's a different thing, but yeah, I'm always, I'm always in the studio every day. And I actually work with the guy who's really interesting. His name, is, his name is Mike Monday. And he's kind of turned me on to a new way of doing music. Like a lot of people think that it's just, uh, oh, you just get your inspiration when you get your inspiration and that's it. Or you can just work on something and pound it to death until it works but I've kind of started this new thing that's working incredibly well where I just do as many ideas as possible. And then we kind of had this thing in a program called Trello and it's a system and it's like you do a hundred ideas in 30 days and then you just whittle them down. Like these are the 20 that I think are better. And, the, and then these are the 10 that I'm going to finish. And then these are the five that I finished out of the hundred. And because you had a hundred, it's like, you're guaranteed it's, there's some amazing shit in there. But if you only started with the five and you're just like, like needling those five, it, they might turn out good, but the chances of them being amazing are way lower. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, it sounds like the creative process you're using is the one I hear a lot, which is try a lot of shit. Yeah. And, and, and see what works. And in that beginning, you know, in business, in business, no geek speak, we call it ideation, right? It's like in the beginning, yeah. we're brainstorming and we're not evaluating or criticizing. We just, it doesn't matter how stupid it is. As a matter of fact, my friend, um, the legendary designer, John Bielenberg, he, he calls this approach thinking wrong. And in order to teach kids creativity, uh -huh. When he teach, he teaches at universities and he lectures a lot. He's an amazing guy. Anyway, one of the exercises he does in his workshops is he says, your job is to design and build a bicycle. And there's only one design point for the bicycle. It cannot be rideable. Uh, okay. <laughs> because his theory is you can always take something that is completely crazy, some, you know, completely creative, completely stupid quote unquote, stupid and dial it back. And maybe yeah. some good ideas come out of it. But he says, it's hard to take something that's very practical and functional and dial it up. And so 
in yeah. the early stages of creativity, you know, it sounds like that's, that's what you're doing. You're throwing, yeah. you're, you're being super creative and not judgmental. And then you figure it out down the line. It's like seeing what sticks to the wall. Like it, and there's no judgment on the idea part. This is the same thing that you're saying. It's like, it could be the biggest piece of crap that anyone's ever heard, but it still counts that you did the idea and there's no, you know, you just go back and listen to them later and you're like, oh, okay, obviously that's just garbage. But there is a chance that you'll hear something where you're like, wow, that was really interesting. And maybe you'll just take one little part out of it. And because it's so cool, some accident happened. And yeah. it's almost, and it's almost like you're working on a, a lot of things at the same time. So it also helps because it, a lot of times in music, you, it's like writing, you just get stuck. But let's say you're writing a book, right? Let's say you're writing five books at the same time and you're just totally stuck on the how to play tennis book. So you just go over to the fantasy novel and you just do 10 pages over there so that you can get back to the how to play tennis book. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. Yeah. And it, it tells me a lot about your brain too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, maybe, maybe a little bit of a super creative ADHD theater going on in there. Uh, maybe. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I know I don't have you for a ton longer and I want to be respectful of your time. I did want to touch on for sure. I think it's super cool that there that you're an entrepreneur and it's super cool the role uh, of, of your wife in in the business you oh, guys yeah. have co-created the business together and it sounds like right. she's been a huge supporter of you on the creative side and now you have this business together so can you tell me a little bit about that well initially she always had a she was a marketer and she had a lot of big marketing jobs at like leapfrog and and mattel and like all these companies but so I was running it for many years by myself and it was like decently successful. But then when she, I, you know, like I would just come in and be like, Oh my God, I wish this was better. I wish this was better to the point where she's just like, fuck it. I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand watching this train wreck. I'm coming in and I'm going to start doing all the marketing and help you with the events. And like, that really like we had a really good thing but it was so one man bandish that it, there was just no way it could blow up and so when she came in it was like the fuel on the fire that we really needed and she really took it to the places where i just i can't do everything and she's very smart and she's just changed everything like the way we collect data like all the things that there's no way i would think of it's a really good partnership and so how does it feel to uh, and you have children yes yeah we have kids yeah do you have kids i don't know okay but i'm curious how does it feel you you two have co-created a life you co-created some people <laughs> and you've co-created this business and so yeah. you know that's that's like you're doing an extreme partnership with each other on yeah. every dimension possible right and it so it gets hairy i'm yeah, not gonna lie tell me about that <laughs> <laughs> there there are points where you're like wow like 
this we're just going at it and it's not there's like no there's no safe zone if your business partner is also your wife and your co-parent and like they like there's no boundary to the arguments they can just cross over into everything (laughs) so yeah there have been there's no safety zone (laughs) right there's no like safe area that you can hide but uh, it still, even though that happens, I think we're really good together. And I mean, that's just bound to happen. And hopefully I'm really pushing for her to get like more of a staff, like more an assistant group. Like she's holding a lot of things and I have an assistant. And I mean, it's like, pretty obvious that she should have one too, but she's stubborn just like me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, uh, it's an inspiring, uh, story and inspiring relationship. She must be, uh, an amazing gal. She's great. Now, Barkley, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we kick out? Um, I don't know. Not really. I mean, I'd just like to maybe say something about our festival that we started about five years ago. Yeah. Tell me all about it. That was probably the riskiest, most harrowing thing that we ever did, which is basically a seven to 9,000 four day camping festival where all adults show up and you get assigned a color bandana when you get there. And so you not only listen to music all weekend, you play games against each other. Like you're in little kids summer camp and it was a kind of a crazy idea and it worked. We had some really bad luck here and there and good luck. And it's been a real roller coaster, like real entrepreneur test <laughs> of like, how long can you endure it? But I think it's I'm probably having, I'm- the best. I'm sorry to it's like the best thing we ever did, but it's like a love hate, like awesome project. I'm, what, what the <laughs> fuck was it? Was it the Fly Fest? What was that festival? Oh, Fire Festival. Fire Festival. Yeah. I saw that documentary. Yeah. I and mean, so I'm like, I, I, is, is that sort of the clerks of the event business, right? Are you, yeah. you must have moments. I, that, I will tell you that I, when I watched that movie, I think my blood pressure, like I got such high anxiety watching that movie, more anxiety than anyone could imagine watching a movie. I was like, that was like watching like psycho for me. You're sort of worst nightmare come true, right? Because we've had not even close to that extent, but we had a festival go south once and it is the worst and it's almost like we ended up pulling it out but man talk about just like watching your life flash before your eyes it's watching a festival go down and so at the time how long ago remind me when you started your fest your first festival uh we will be doing the fifth one on the west coast this year so Five years, I guess. And did it feel like a bet the business move at the time or how did it feel? Well, we had originally, yes, we had a partner that split the risk for the first few years. Now we're carrying all of it, which I don't know how wise that is, but it's what we're doing. 
And uh, yeah, it kind of is every time. It's kind of scary, but it's so good that I, that we have to do it. And um, do you perform at all of them as well, I assume, or, yeah. or some of them you don't perform at? I go to every single thing at the festival. I perform three times. I have another alias where I do hip-hop stuff, and uh, I go to all the games. I, I, I program the third stage, which is all the weird game shows and silly like comedian stuff. And yeah, I'm very hands-on. Yeah, from top to bottom, it's like my baby. It, it must my also. Third I mean, baby. I'm sure it's terrifying because you're got all this financial risk, and you know, is anybody yeah. going to show up? And you know, I'm sure all of that, right? It but at is. the same time, as a, as an artist, I mean, you you are super ADHD, mega creative dude, right? And so you got lots of. You, there's yeah. this old Jay Giles song where Peter Wolf sings. People sometimes ask me why I scream and I shout. I say it's in there. It's got to come out. Right. And there's a lot of shit you have that's got to come out, right? Yeah. And so is a festival an amazing canvas for an artist like you? I think that's why I like it. The, I think it's why it's my favorite thing that we do because it's got so many elements to get your hands dirty on, like stage design, programming, music, Booking, I booked the entire lineup myself with my label manager, Darren. Like, it is me. The thing is me. It's crazy. Yeah. Fucking A, dude. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> anything else before we wrap, Barkley? I got a bunch of music coming out, but just go check out my website if you want to hear anything. Yeah. Uh, is there any uh, specific date you want to tease out? Uh, I have something coming out on the 17th uh, of May. It's on a compilation of another one of these heroes of Detroit techno. Carl Craig is, uh, he made a compilation called Detroit love and he was nice enough to ask me to be on it. So I made an original song for it. that. That's coming out on the 17th. And then like June 29th, I have a, another record coming out on dirty bird. And the best way for people to track that and learn how to buy that and all that is... is um, Just go to cloudvonstroke.com or dirtybird.com. Either one, and you'll find it somehow. Well, Mr. Von Stroke, this has been fucking <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I did want to ask you about the name, but maybe we could do that next time. I would love to have you back. Do um, people just call you Chris? Yeah, Chris or Christopher. Yeah. I don't give a shit. You Christopher, know. Christopher. I, get, I get a mix of both. My, uh, my wife calls me you fucker. Yeah, <laughs> I get that sometimes. <laughs> but you're a fascinating guy. You, you, you know, I, I love that you have constructed this life for yourself sort of at the intersection of sort of creativity and entrepreneurship, uh, music and entrepreneurship. Um, it's very, very cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on the show. Thank you, brother. Yeah, how do you like that? The number one, the best DJ in America, none other than Claude Von Stroke on the podcast. <laughs> How cool is that? Now, in business, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know what's going on. And today, you need to know what is going on. <laughs> you want to be on top of the seminal numbers that drive your business and power your growth. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. 
Imagine having every critical number you need to manage and grow your business at your fingertips, on your smartphone, in your browser, on your tablet, anywhere, anytime. NetSuite makes that happen. With some amazing dashboards, you can stay on top of sales, finance, accounting, orders, inventory, uh, customers, and HR instantly. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage and grow their business. And now it's available to you. And it's surprisingly cost-effective. And as a listener to this podcast, our friends at NetSuite are offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So check out netsuite.com different. And while you're there, you'll be able to book that free one-hour review. netsuite.com different. Because with NetSuite, You'll always know, and when you know, you're going to be able to grow. <laughs> We're going to get a little Dr. Susie with it today. Uh, you can find us on the internet at lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. And even if you subscribe on one of the major um, uh, podcast listening platforms, we actually don't know you're there. So if you want to have a direct relationship with us, go to lockhead.com and hit subscribe. Uh, we've been taking our newsletter game up lately, so hopefully we're delivering some uh, cool written content. And here's the other thing I tell you. We will never, ever, ever sell your name to anybody. So when you subscribe and make uh, a commitment to uh, sort of letting us know you're there, know that we're never going to send you anything, gar- never going to send you any garbage, and we're never going to sell your email address to anybody else. All right. We would like to thank the living legend himself, Claude Von Stroke. Uh, awesome having him on the podcast. Check out ClaudeVonStroke.com for all his music and all his new music that is just coming out uh, this this spring. Number one bestseller on Amazon, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, written by uh, Heather Clancy and myself. Uh, check it out. Our good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. Um, go to go to the website, and while you're there, check out information on our new upcoming conference coming up in beautiful Long Beach, California. There'll be many legendary speakers there, and me too. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to see you at uh, at our One Life uh, event later on this year. And uh, do you want the most important thing that all of us have in life, which is time? Want more time? Well, maybe the way to do that is through a virtual assistant. So why not learn how to uh, uh, leverage the power of a virtual assistant with my good friends, Bottleneck, at bottleneck.online. And do you love popcorn? I have recently discovered what is probably the most legendary popcorn on planet Earth, and that's Fisher's popcorn. Amazing caramel popcorn and a variety of other awesome flavors since 1937. This is a family-owned business in beautiful Ocean City, Maryland, and always at fisherspopcorn.com. And let's not forget about the incredible people at Habitat for Humanity. Everybody deserves a decent place to live, and that's the mission of Habitat. Check out what they do at habitat.org today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. Uh, we must warn you that clearly this podcast does get produced in a studio that does contain nuts, and often the uh, creators of this podcast are consuming libations. Remember to teach kids music, support your local DJs, Fishing for a good time starts with throwing in your line. Don't forget, dirty birds are fun birds. <laughs> Buy John's crazy socks. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. 
And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to CEO, I should say former CEO of Symantec, Greg Clark. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. It means the world to me that you want to hang out um, and uh, continue to hopefully enjoy this podcast. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.